My name is Kate Webster and I'm the Director of the Sport, Exercise and Rehabilitation Research Focus Area at La Trobe University. We're pleased to be the higher education sponsors of Sports Medicine Australia Conference, which has been held in my hometown city of Melbourne in October this year. Today I'm talking with our invited keynote speaker, Professor Tim Hewitt from the Mayo Clinic. Good afternoon, Tim. Thanks for joining me. Good afternoon, Dr. Webster. How are you doing? I'm good. Please call me Kate. I will do that. I've followed all your great work in ACL injury prevention. I'm interested to know what you think the biggest risk factors for ACL injury are. Well, for sure the biggest risk factor for ACL injury is prior ACL injury. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. And, and that's going to be the focus of our symposium on Thursday afternoon. But other factors for, for primary ACL injuries are BMI, body mass index, is a, is a good predictor that falls out of all the studies, bone length. So kind of the idea, you know, the physics of it, the bigger you are, the harder you fall are, are realistic and, and that falls out to be true. Uh, but it, when we start to look at modifiable factors, the number one most predictive factor is that sort of dirty little term we call valgus, which is this lower extremity alignment where the, the hip and the knee cave inward. So it's a, a combination of lower extremity rotations and luxations that include uh, hip adduction and internal rotation along with knee abduction, tibial internal rotation, and, and very often, uh, you know, collapse of the arch of the foot. And that's that's really from a modifiable standpoint, from a prevention standpoint, that that's the the best predictor that we've found in in over 20 years of prospective cohort studies. So you talk about prevention. Are ACL injuries preventable? I think, without a doubt, ACL injuries are preventable. If you look at as without a doubt a scientific hypothesis can be, so. My student, Dai Sugimoto, who's now a postdoc uh, with Lyle McKaylee up at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital at the McKaylee Institute, he, he looked at, we've actually done this meta-analysis, oh, we've published it at least three times. And the last one we published showed that it, from 14 level one randomized control trials, it showed a relative odds ratio reduction with neuromuscular training of the risk of a primary injury by 62%. Now, if you go back to our first study in this area that we published in American Journal of Sports Medicine in 1999, we showed the exact same value of 62% relative reduction. So the data is highly reproducible. And there, there were studies done out of uh, Wolf Peterson's group and others in Germany where they looked at, uh, they, they published this in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, and they showed how reproducible that relative odds ratio risk reduction of 62% is. The, the randomized control trials really closely hugged the line of that 0.62 uh, risk reduction, and also if you look at a fun, at their funnel plot analysis, it all falls within that fun, funnel. So it's it's very consistent, reliable, reproducible, and highly valid. It's it's not uh, that funnel plot analysis demonstrates that it's it's not a positive publication bias. It's it's a real and valid effect. So 
my answer is nearly as nearly as it can be an unequivocal yes that we can prevent primary ACL injuries. And I agree. Um, what are your thoughts though about screening athletes for injury risk? So screening has gotten very, very interesting. We started screening athletes. Uh, we've been doing it for over 20 years now for both primary and, and subsequent ACL injury risk. And it's become quite controversial. We, we published this now 11 years ago where we demonstrated in a young adolescent population of soccer or football players, volleyball players, and basketball players that we could predict with nearly 80% sensitivity and specificity which players were going to go on to injury. Now, recently, people have criticized that and said, well, can you really predict that? Now, really, that prediction term is, is another sort of uh, a worrisome term because it's, it's a statistical construct. So what a biostatistician tells you is, yes, absolutely, that's, that's what you use a logistic regression analysis for, to predict. But it's, we're getting in this sort of semantic argument of, can you really predict which athlete is going to be injured? Well, of course not. You can't predict which one, but you can certainly use that data to risk stratify with a high level of sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value. I agree. Uh, unfortunately, though, people do sustain ACL injuries, and one of my areas of interest has been returning to sport after ACL injury. I'm interested to know what you believe the key uh, criteria are for a return to sports following this injury and surgery. Well, I'll be honest, Kate, all we've been doing is trying to follow and imitate your work for the last 10 years in this area, to be, to be truthful. It's, it's, um, it's challenging, the, the question of what, does, what do you use for a return to sport progression? Now, what we did is we used the same experimental paradigm, what we call prospective cohort coupled biomechanical epidemiologic studies. So what we do is we take entire teams of athletes and we bring them into the lab. We test them use anywhere between, depending on the study, between, say, eight and 15 different stations where we measure neuromuscular control, proprioception, balance, kinesthesia, and many other factors, anthropometric factors. We, we take body mass. We've even done some studies looking at skeletal structure. And really what fell out of these studies, which we started publishing around 2010, were that there's a combination of four factors that, that predict risk and the four modifiable factors that can predict risk of a second injury. Obviously, Again, that first injury is the best predictor, but of modifiable biomechanical neuromuscular factors, we looked at over 3,200 variables, and basically what, found, what fell out of our tests, what the best predictors were. Now, this, had a, this logistic regression model had a very high uh, C statistic. It, it could predict risk with about 94%, account for 94% of the variability. Just the modifiable factor of a net hip internal rotation moment at during landing and takeoff from a drop vertical jump test, just that alone 
if you had a net positive internal rotation moment on landing, you had an over eight times greater risk of a second ACL tear. Now, there were three other factors as well. That coupled knee abduction or that internal uh, adduction of the, of the knee joint, you know, falling into the midline. When we looked at the medial collapse of the knee, if you showed that on at least one side, you had a three-and-a-half-fold greater risk of a second tear. If you had a side-to-side -side asymmetry in relative peak quad-to-ham activation, those external hip, or I'm sorry, external knee flexor-to-extensor moments, you had about a three times greater risk of tearing a second ACL. And if you had a stiffening strategy, in other words, on a balance test, you had a much tighter, less variable uh, pattern of movement during balance. In other, words, in other words, you were stiffening up your joint because you didn't sense it well. You had about a two-fold greater risk. If you put those four variables out of 3,200 that we measured together, that C statistic, again, counted for 94% of the variability, was a highly predictive model. In other words, we could stratify, we could risk stratify those individuals with, it was about 92% sensitivity and about 88% specificity for not picking out those who weren't at relatively high risk. Great. Now, we're going to be sharing a symposium on second ACL injuries at the conference, and I'm really looking forward to this. What do you make of the high second ACL injury rates we've been both finding in our data sets? So, yeah, you and I have had this discussion and, and we've been lecturing together at various places recently at the ESCA meet in meeting in Barcelona. And it's, it's really uh, concerning. It's, it's highly worrisome. So we did this series, the studies I was just talking about, these series of biomechanical epidemiologic prospective cohort studies. And what we showed in a relatively small cohort, when we first published it, it was only about 58 second ACLs that, that we, it was actually only a total of 58 uh, primary ACLs. And we had in that group about 13 ACL tears. So it was relatively low numbers. So we were a little concerned about looking at the epidemiology of this in this really small sample. But what we showed is after one year, we had about a 25% risk, about about a quarter of these individuals went on to a second ACL tear. And then when we followed them out at two years, we saw a 29% risk. We published this. We were actually able to publish this in, in good journals, including American Journal of Sports Medicine. And But I, I was still worried when we published it. And then when we found out about the same time you published your paper, which showed the exactly the same 29% relative risk. And then, then I felt a lot more confident. It was, it, was, it was, you know, it's a worrisome thing. It's very concerning, but it's less concerning to have someone else with a much larger, more valid cohort show exactly the same number. And then, as you know, and I think as others know, Lou Pincheski and, and Lucy Salmon's group in, in Sydney published the literally the exact same number again just over the last few months. So, and then we did a study, I, I've been here at Mayo Clinic just over a year now, and we did, we looked retrospectively at, a, at the high, one of the highest risk group, which is female 
say soccer football players, and we showed a relative risk of about 34% of a second tear. Now, what that data is telling us proportionally, the risk is somewhere between a quarter and a third if you're, say, under 20 years old, young, active, and going back to the same level of sport. That's extremely uh, concerning, but it's also when you think about the consilience, the the convergence of that data, it's absolutely astonishing, which shows us that relative risk of a second tear is real, and the data is highly valid, and it's scary data. It is, and Lucy Salmon is going to be joining us in our symposium, so it's going to be great to be able to put all our data sets together. I, I think uh, people are going to be amazed at how much convergence there is across the globe with that, with that relative risk of, of a second tear. So are we um, perhaps returning our young athletes to sport too soon, and when should they return? That's a very good question, and I, I, my first answer is I don't think it should be based on time. I think that's a mistake that we're making again and again. And, of course, as scientists, as clinicians, we're pushed, especially clinicians are pushed very hard because the first, one of the first questions they get from the athlete is, Doc, when can I get back? When can I get back on the field? And the, the whole practice, the whole field of sports medicine has been pushed to answer that question. I don't think we should answer that question because it's extremely variable. We published a paper back in 2010 in AGSM where we showed that the outcomes, your relative outcomes, have nothing to do with when you return back from, from sport. All it shows is if you return very early, your relative risk goes way up, but your neuromuscular biomechanical preparedness to return are not directly related to the time post-surgery. And those first, when, when we look at that, the, your data shows this, so does ours. It, it Again, it's amazing how similar the data sets are. In the first year, about half of the injuries occur. In the first two years, Two, or I'm sorry, three quarters of the injuries occur. So in those first two years, your relative risk is extremely high if you're young, physically active, and going back to the same level of sport. So I would challenge clinicians to do this. Use very objectively based, phased protocols that slowly return the athlete back at a level when you know that they can meet return criteria. There was a recent paper that showed eight-fold greater risk of a second tear or a graft tear if you didn't pass through objective criteria. And I would challenge clinicians, if you're going to use time only as your criteria, we just published a paper, a, a student, Chris Nigelli of mine and I, in sports medicine, where we say, if you look at all the data, if you look at bone scans of the knee that are hot, and they're hot up to about two years, if you look at proprioception, any crude measure of kinesthesia or balance, it's off until about two years. If you look at the relative risk of a second tear, it's way up. 75% of them occur in the first two years. There's all this data. If you look at the biologic data, the graft doesn't heal, especially hamstrings grafts, which are the predominant graft now. They don't heal down to bone until well after 18 months and into two years. So if you're only going to use time, I would say they shouldn't go back until two years plus. 
And we're going to certainly be delving into this a lot more in our symposium. But do you think ACL injury prevention programs that are designed for preventing a primary or initial ACL injury can be used to prevent a second or secondary ACL injury? I think they need to be more targeted towards those modifiable risk factors that I discussed before. Now, a lot of those modifiable risk factors, the hip internal rotation, knee abduction, that inward hip and knee collapse, this differential and relative quad ham activation side to side, which I term leg dominance, and this stiffening strategy. So basically what we've done over the last 20 years is develop this paradigm of what we call ligament dominance, relying on your ligaments instead of your musculature to absorb and dissipate force, quadriceps dominance, front loading rather than turning on your posterior chain, leg dominance, asymmetry side to side, and what, what I call trunk dominance, which is this lack of balance and activation of the core relative to the plantar surface of the foot. I think in general, yes, the, that paradigm works, but I think we need to really hone down on those very specific modifiable factors that predict the second injury, like that net hip internal rotation moment. We have to teach these athletes to activate their core hip glute complex to externally rotate that femur as they're landing and taking off again. And I think it has to be very specific to those variables, those parameters that predict a second injury. Thanks, Tim. Now, I don't think you've actually been to Melbourne before. Is that correct? I have never been to Melbourne before. I'm so much looking forward to the, a visit to this beautiful city. You know, I've only been to uh, Aussie land once before. I was invited by the AOA, the Australian Orthopedic Association, and the AKS, the Australian Knee Society, and I ended up in Darwin. And I found <laughs> out that even Charles Darwin had never been to Darwin. So <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to flipping and going to the very other south side of the continent and, uh, and seeing a different uh, viewpoint. Well, we're certainly looking forward to having you and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and I will see you in Melbourne in October. 